This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am Dave Moten. I am the author of Mindframe, and I am the narrator of all of the chapters. And with me, as always, is Brent Van Tassel, my producer and partner in crime in all things Mindframe. We are a member of the Podbelly Network, and we are a Podbelly original. And if you want to find some educational content and some great podcasts to listen to, you can find them on podbelly.com. And also, if you like what we're doing, you can support us on patreon.com backslash mindframepodcast to find different tiers and different levels of support. You'll get different bonuses and tchotchkes and so forth uh, for the support. On this chapter, we listen to the beginning of the story of Captain Claire Campana, and she is the daughter of the poor soul who passed away in the prologue. And in this chapter, we see her both uh, getting over the death of her father, um, dealing with some awkwardness with her mother, and trying to come to terms that she's just been upvoted to become the captain of her father's old ship. So um, it's sort of a tale of uh, growth and exploration, and it's the beginning of Captain Campana's chapters. So I hope you enjoy this look to the future in Mindframe Podcast. Chapter 3, Captain Claire Campana, 2142. How's the training? Strange, Captain Claire Campana said. Even that much, that one word made her feel guilty like she'd said too much about something so utterly classified by WorldGov. That's what your father said whenever I asked him about the framing. Strange, Campana's mother said, dropping her voice several octaves in an overblown impression of him on the last word. Trust me, honey, I don't need to know any more than that. I had a working understanding with your father about your shared line of work. I'd ask him how things were, a thumbs up, a thumbs down, that's all I needed. It communicated how much he needed from me on any particular shore leave he was on. Campana issued a thumbs up, paused. A sudden vacuity of coffee shop chatter filled by spoons tinking against ceramic of something sizzling on the grill floated between them. Her mother, only separated by the distance of a cafe table, felt farther away than the rings of Saturn. Campana filled the void, asking, How's the leg? Fine. Better than fine. No pain? Nothing left to feel pain with. My doctor says I should do both of them so I'm not constrained. Right now I have to dial this one way back so it stays on par with the old me. Otherwise I'd hurt myself. If I did both of them I could sprint like I was at the academy again. That's good, Mama, Captain Campana said. The waitress set a tea in front of Campana and a coffee before her mom. The coffee looked fine, but the tea was a typical monstrosity of the Americas. It was the color of infected urine in a tall glass filled with ice. It would taste flat and chlorinated and would only be consumable if it was inundated with sweetener. Tea wasn't tea in this part of the world. It was a delivery device for sugar. The waitress, knowing this truth about tea, set a small brown porcelain square on the table. It was filled with colored packets of various sweeteners, all pastels to summon Easter and indicate they were smooth on the palate. Do you have any mineral water? Campana said. Gerald Steiner okay? Please, Campana said, sliding the tea as far away from her as possible without having to stretch or stand up. Her mother laughed. So like your father. You two and your navel teas. A man spilled his water in the corner booth and hissed out air as if he'd been bitten by a venomous creature. A flatulent ketchup bottle released gas and condiments together just to Campana's back. 
Her mother chose a raw sugar and poured half a pack into her coffee, intensely, as if counting every square brown crystal as it descended into the deep. Is it quiet? Kampana asked. No, hun. No more than usual. He'd be on tour more than at home, so I'm used to the quiet. It's just more empty, I guess, knowing the silence won't be abbreviated by a shore leave or eventual retirement. All I asked for was the occasional abbreviation of a husband. But now, that's gone, I guess, life without the abbreviations. Oh, Kampana said. She was asking about her mother's new leg, had wondered if the artificial muscle made noises like hydraulics or something would. She wasn't asking about the family house being quiet since her father's death two years ago, but didn't want to correct her mother after such an emotive moment. The waitress set down the bottled water in a glass of ice, cracked the seal with a refreshing hiss, and poured the water into the glass. Just a minute on the lunch, she said, and walked off with her data pad and stencil in front of her, ready for an order from a Caucasian couple two booths over. Campana wasn't used to seeing this many Caucasians, not back where she grew up, not in the academy, and especially not in the World Navy. She drank her water. The other drank her coffee. Lovely up here. It is. Mountains. The wind farms. Bigger than I thought they'd be. You still thinking of visiting the battle site? I think so. The Battle of Bright Valley Dam. I've always been interested in that one. Me too, ever since they made the movie. I can't believe the Americans actually won that battle. Don't know how. A light laugh and subtle rolling of eyes. The old Americans were a funny, proud, greedy, obstinate creature. They'd be more amusing to make fun of if they hadn't lost WVW so utterly and horribly. The sandwiches came. They were good, large enough to split and still have leftovers. It was surprising that this was just one food shit's worth of food stuff. The mother and daughter ate in silence, and in between bites, Campana noticed that her mother was wiping tears from her eyes. It took time for a naval widow to come to terms. At least that was the advice Admiral Necheyev gave her at the funeral. It was easy for Campana herself. Father was a naval captain. He died helming his ship. He died in the service of WorldGov. So would Claire Campana one day, she assumed. No reason to get sentimental about it. Civilians are allowed the privilege of grief. Officers of the World Navy are allowed the privilege of duty. It was a naval slogan recited at funerals. This mantra echoed in Campana's head through her father's memorial to such a degree that she never saw the need for sorrow. Unlike her mother. The weekend was almost over. She didn't know when she'd see her mom next. Campana had been upvoted to captain and would soon be helming Eleanor Gray, her father's old ship. She wanted to see her mother while she was so close. The Mojave was as close to Tijuana as she'd likely be for the next several years. But they had to meet in a small mountain town called Tehachapi, since her mom didn't have clearance to be anywhere near the training areas. Tehachapi was a nice place, a small mountain town rich with all the rustic trappings such a town needed to summon, part of what used to be Southern California. It was quaint with towering white relics of the brief wind power era, Enormous fans peppering the mountains, indifferently chopping the air through the ages, unaware that their time was past. Campana and her mom packed their leftovers and rode a shuttle over to Bright Valley Dam. A tour guide took them around with a group of 12 others, half Caucasian tourists, half Chinese officers from the Mojave Training Complex. The tour was nice. Campana and her mom ate the second half of their sandwiches picnic-style by the memorial statue, a bronze of a woman with a bandana on her face, and a stocking cap on. 
The bronze deviant was in a pose as if she'd just thrown a weapon at a soldier or a Mao Yu. It was a statue of a famous photo taken by the field reporter who'd survived the battle. The reporter died in a retaliatory strike against the Americans after the battle, if Campana remembered her military history properly. Yes, that was right. It was when Tehachapi, the old Tehachapi, was razed to the ground. All that was left standing were the wind turbines and the dam. The heat wasn't so bad up here in the mountains, and the breeze, the reason for the old wind farms and shade, made for a pleasant afternoon. Her mother spoke of her father and cried a bit as the sun set. They hugged. Campana's caller beeped at her to let her know her time was almost up. Shore leave, almost finished. As soon as I'm back on shore, I'll be at the house, Mama. You can count on an abbreviated daughter, if not a husband. It shouldn't be much longer. The lariat is closing. Her mother grabbed hold of her and sobbed. Campana soothed her, and they walked to the bus yard where Campana boarded to head down the mountain, back toward the Mojave training complex. Her mother waved through the other side of a darkened bus window and placed her hand over her heart. It was a symbol she reserved for the moments that a Campana disembarked for service. I'm proud of you. Ten days later, Campana passed all of her framing exams with near-record-setting scores, and her training to be a ship's captain was finally complete. She sat before the tepid breeze of a fan, wishing she'd never gone to Tehachapi. The contrast of the cooler mountain air and this punishing desert floor made her eager to leave Mojave for good. She noticed Lieutenant Begay crossing through the cafe, looking only to tables with single women at them, looking for Campana. No, it was now Commander Begay, not Lieutenant. He was upvoted the same time she was. They were Commander and Captain now, not Lieutenant and Commander. He probably came bearing news for her about their departure. Campana was trying to relax before the flight, drinking an iced white tea, wishing it had sugar in it, but doubting if the sugar was the thing that was missing. It was better than the iced tea that she drank on shore leave with her mother, but it was still bad. She thought of waving down Commander Begay to end his search, but she wanted him to earn it. A trait, perhaps petty, that she had developed as an officer. Give nothing to anybody. See instead how they earn it. It was a slogan as old as WorldGov, and one she led by. The cafe was large, a central social hub of the port. It housed two large shaded outside seating areas, and it was the only place to caffeinate and get a cold drink. The cafe's corrugated metal and exposed industrial architecture was as uninspired as the tea. Campana's view off of the patio was of a flat plain of arid dirt at this end of the port. Hills in the distance were made wobbly by lines of heat that even the visual spectrum thought were too much to bear. The cooler air of Tehachapi was up in those mountains, obfuscated by those waves of heat. The naval uniform didn't help. Black and heavy and high-collared and crisp, a thing meant for ship life, not the temperatures of this place. Captain Campana, too, was meant for ship life, having been on solid ground for months now during training and funeral and eager to get it out from under her feet. Everything was too heavy here based on the hard physics of the world. On a ship, all things were up to the captain, even the gravity, and she, finally, was the captain. Captain Campana, ma'am, the commander said, finally picking Campana from the large crowd. Not an easy task when everyone wore the same uniforms and tended to have the same short hair. The commander stood at salute. He was a short man whose round face and large eyes made him seem the age of a child. His skin was as brown as an African, though he was from India. 
so his facial features seemed odd under that pigment. He had an amazingly dense and dark beard. He sweated into his own navel collar, seeming as ill at ease being on the ground as Campana was. Commander Begay had served under Campana long enough that she considered him a friend, though command school recently told her such friendships should be avoided in a hierarchical command structure. Campana saluted back, indicating the other seat at the table with an open palm. Captain Campana, her old friend said, not Commander. These titles would take some getting used to, like remembering to write the new year instead of the old one during the frosty dawn of January. She supposed he felt the same way with his new moniker of Commander. Care to hydrate, Commander Begay? She said, holding up with sweating iced tea. No thank you, ma'am. Begay sat as requested, and his shoulders slumped, eyes closing as the oversized fan blew weakly on his face. The Clinton wanted me to let you know there is a slight delay. We won't leave port until 1430. Trouble on the BQ's end, loading up some cargo, apparently. They must want to cram every centimeter of her hull full of doodads for the lariat, I think. Based on their reluctance to discuss it, it's something top secret, something new dreamed up by the messengers, perhaps? The Clinton's cargo is none of our concern, especially if it is not mission-related. Thank you, Commander. Are you still on duty? No, Captain, Begay said. Not unless you want me to send word back to the Clinton. No such word. In fact, I insist you have a drink. The benefit of being an officer is that you don't have to meddle with launch prep. I'd stay away from the white iced tea, though. Something off with it, Campana said. She flagged down an ensign working at the cafe. Begay ordered an iced Americano with double raw cashew milk, and Campana held two fingers up to indicate she wanted the same. So what's she like, Campana asked. The Clinton? asked Begay. Yes, she must be a hell of a ship, Campana said. The WNV Clinton was a Jovian-class vessel filled with the advancements that the entire human race would have thought fictional only two decades ago. A hell of a ship. She is that. A bit unnerving what she can do, actually. Her walls aren't even solid. Well, they appear solid, but they are actually some state of matter none of the physics or back engineers can figure out. It's like the walls, they know you're there, like they watch you, they breathe, they move. Another of a billion questions to ask when the lariat finally opens, I suppose. But to be honest, all things considered, Begay said, pausing and looking to nearby tables before finishing in a hushed voice, I'm glad to be stationed on the Grey. It was a sentiment Campana got a lot since she was upvoted to become commander of the Eleanor Grey. Ships like Clinton and the Chandra Shikar Azad were miracles of technology, the newest boats humanity could build. But the venerable Eleanor Grey was the first of her kind. The first true spaceship built by the human race, a legend to the Navy and the Earth's population at large. She was a Razor-class vessel and could make it to the outer rings of the solar system and back to Earth in under a month using her NDE propulsion systems. Even though she was almost a hundred years old, newer ships didn't have that level of thrust. Razors were built to haul minerals and water from the asteroid belt on the fringe of the solar system as well as massive sections of the Lariat's hull from Earth to the construction site, so the extra burn was needed. Command dubbed this generation of Starship as Razor-class vessels because they looked like the old three-head electric razors, a sleek long body with a protruding set of triple thrusters that rotated and resembled the beveling blades that would adjust to contour a man's face. Everyone kept that rather mundane detail under wraps, trying to play up the idea that they were instead straight razors, ready to cut a man's throat. 
Campana and Bigay drank their coffees, which were a vast improvement over the tea, and they made small talk about technical advances that Eleanor Gray was undergoing in dry dock on the other side of the sun and the delays in repair due to solar storms near the station. Bigay asked how the previous Captain Campana's funeral was, asked how her mother was taking it, and reiterated his regrets that command school would not give him leave to attend since it wasn't his own family. The conversation quickly turned to what questions they'd personally ask of the Lariat beings when they finally opened the thing and came through to our solar system. When the two officers had their fill of theoretical first contact scenarios, the 22nd century's equivalent of asking what you'd do with lotto winnings, they had a sensible discussion of the crew roster. It was all typical naval chatter. Begay checked his wrist often to make sure of the time, and as the coffees eventually drained down to withered bits of ice that danced to avoid the straw, he suggested they head to the dock. Are these your effects? Begay asked. The rest should be on the launch already. Begay grabbed the captain's suitcase and one of her shoulder bags. Campana grabbed the other bags before the commander could get to it. They left the shaded and fanned enclosure of the cafe and the heat descended. It was hard and heavy, and it radiated through Campana's muscles and down to the ligaments and bones. The high collar of her uniform and the black of the fabric doubled the effects. Naval collars were tall and black, like a priest's, but without the white slit and whatever it symbolized. The collars were mission-critical high-tech gadgets, not just a jaunty fashion statement, and they got a bit stifling in the profound Mojave heat. As they crossed the port, Campana noted that the bulk of the people were wearing desert tan, not naval black, and they wore short sleeves and some of them even short pants. They were world police, not navy, but they were still servicemen and women. Every member of the service dressed appropriately, she assumed, realizing she'd soon be on her ship where her uniform made sense and be free from this torturous temperature. Campana and Bigay walked past a crew trying to get a stalled engine to roll over on a truck. With all the advances raining down from heaven, the sound of an engine turning over but failing to start was somehow comforting. Like a garbage truck or sprinklers in the night, the sound of technology could be as soothing as a purring kitten. Only the world police still had a class of vehicle that used gasoline instead of battery. Wheeled vehicles themselves would be gone too pretty soon, Campana figured, replaced by some otherworldly advancement that the messengers drew plans for. The captain approached the launch lounge, and her badge, breast, and collar were scanned to verify identity. She was led inside to an air-conditioned sitting room. The cool was so profound it shocked her lungs to take only a half-breath. The room was white and sterile, hosting narrow, short doors that could seal in an instant. It felt more like the Navy than the rest of the port did. More like home. Campana finally felt like she was returning to where she belonged, away from this heat, and away from the hard, unforgiving parcel beneath her feet. She checked her wrist. The skin was set to display the time, temp, and any messages. The freckles on her wrist read that the time was 1417. Beside that, the temperature read 48.33, and as soon as she got a new signal indoors, the temperature shifted to 22.22, .22, a nice, round, comfortable temperature. No mail icon was printed in her melanin, so she didn't have any messages. That, of course, meant they were all waiting on her new commander's wrist instead. One perk of being captain? Someone else had to filter out the junk mail. Campana could hear the ship being prepped, the hiss of fuel being moved, the whir of bolts being tightened, but the view here was no better than the cafe. Only hard-used dirt and hills baking in the kiln of the Mojave surrounded them. 
She thought there should be a Joshua tree or cactuses, but nothing save earth and sky and heat was between her and the high horizon. A dozen other people were here in the sitting room of the launch. Campana recognized most of them from the crew docket. Many were signing on under her command once they reached Eleanor Gray. The three of them she didn't recognize must be the Commodore's people with a final destination of the Clinton. Salutes were given liberally. She sat near a vent to soak up as much of the conditioned air as she could. Begay checked in the captain's bags with an attendant and sat on the bench across from the captain. Fanning his black jacket by the breast to let some cool air in, he said, My great-grandfather served on the gray. I think I knew that, Campana said. Did I know that? I think so. It was on her maiden voyage. Can you even imagine that? He was a physicist. Optics, not an astronaut. But the very first world vote put him on board as the most qualified, and he eagerly accepted. He spoke of it with reverence. I think he was more proud of that posting than he was of anything in his entire life, even the birth of my father, Begay said with a laugh. Once I graduated from the academy and I fully understood Eleanor Gray's history, I talked to my great-grandfather about how important she was. This was before I joined the Navy, obviously. He was an old man by then, ancient. He'd sleep most of the days, but when I asked him about the Grey, he was 30 years old again. He said it was the most important ship since Noah's Ark. I had to laugh because we're not even Christian. Sorry to go on about it, Captain, but I can't overstate how proud I am to serve on her, under you. Thank you, Commander. I intend to do her history proud. Is he still with us, your great-grandfather? No, ma'am. But he died at 109 years old. Part enhancement, part obstinance, I suppose. He told these stories about poverty he lived in before World Vote. He'd wander the streets of Davi Slum in Mumbai as a boy, before and after school looking for scraps of food from rich visiting Westerners. He loved dogs all through my childhood. He had an uncanny love for them because he says karma dictated it. He had to kill a dog once in an alley. It had a large femur that it must have stolen from a butcher. The bone had scraps of meat and marrow, was still fresh. Grandfather knew that the bone would feed his family for a day or two as soup, and he fought the dog. Killed it with a stone as it turned on him, ready to kill as well. So later in life, before his passing, he opened a sanctuary and took care of dozens of canines as a karmic thank you for that dog's sacrifice. I suspect my family ate the dog he killed, but he never said, and I never asked. I can't imagine eating any animal's flesh, but a dog's? Our history is a barbaric one, Captain. Affirmative. What did he think of WorldGov? I can't imagine the changes he saw in his lifetime, Campana said. Oh, he didn't know much about the changes. He avoided the technology. I doubted he'd have gotten his neural enhancements if it wasn't a requirement to stay in the Navy. He still lived in a simple home, drew water from the well every morning even though he had a tap. But WorldGov? He saw it as a religion, as a savior. It took him past the edges of creation, as he said. He sailed off and saw things with his eyes that he thought a man was never meant to see. Once he was in retirement, he ate well, had a computer, read his news on melanin. His children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will never know the suffering the world used to endure. The squalor. To us, it's merely history books, the corruption and greed and poverty. To him, it was childhood. Captain Campana listened intently. Begay had a reputation of being a bit too chatty, but she liked that about him. She didn't have much to say very often, so a friend who brought a lot to the table was the catalyst of conversations. 
She served on the King Now with Begay under Captain Dianwu Ma. They saw a lot of combat, and in the last round of it, there were many heroics and promotions earned. The Sixth Fleet tried to save the Eleanor Grey and the Tug Fleet from the Deviant attack two years ago, but it failed. Due to her own heroics in the conflict and the loss of the entire crew of the Grey, the World Vote decided to send Campana to her own ship and sent Begay with her, and even though she felt ill-equipped and light on experience and age, being only 36, she trusted the Vote's decision. Plus, Command decided who was up for the Vote in the first place, so her promotion did have a military genesis, not only a popular vote of civilians. Command was one finger of WorldGov. It was the naval branch, run by the five Commodores, each supported by five admirals who each controlled five fleets. There were three other branches of WorldGov as well. Each branch of the WorldGov was a similar pyramid, five people at the top, with five people under each of them. For example, the administrative details of running the world, food supply, fuel, natural resources, population density, etc., were handled by the five advocates, each of whom controlled five regional governors. The global police force was another branch. It handled all ground forces, military and police for the human race. It was headed by five sheriffs, each of whom controlled five army generals. And perhaps the most important, there were the five messengers. The messengers dreamed strange dreams, heard alien voices, drew blueprints for things nobody on earth could understand, and saw the future. They saw the lariat, how important it was to open on our end, how important it was to decide which faction came through from the other side. And the messengers each had five couriers under them who controlled the framing, that essential, human-driven boost to performance, calculation, and construction which led to the world of tomorrow. The framers, couriers, and messengers were receptive to alien messages, psychics as it were, and were all completely crazy as a result. But they drew up designs for weapons, armor, ships, governance, education, engines, foodstuffs, and medicine once they woke up from their maddening dreams. The top 20 people of these pyramids of power, the five commodores, advocates, sheriffs, and messengers, tallied the votes and ran WorldGov exactly as the people of the world desired. The votes were often done lifetime, everyone on the planet connected through a sophisticated network that the messengers built based upon designs they saw in their dreams. The WorldNet made the internet look about as efficient as smoke signals. The world spoke, typically in 90% agreement. WorldGov kept everyone fed, clothed, safe, educated, hydrated, and promised the world a future within the next few months now that would make the Earth a living paradise. The dissenting 10% went along with the votes, saw it as the downside of democracy, or they joined the bottom 2 or 3%, went deviant, and rebelled. This last part, Campana could never understand. She'd been at war with the deviants her entire professional career. 3% of the world's population didn't seem like much until they were shooting at your ship or running up a passageway trying to slit your throat with a small sword or dagger. In the sitting lounge, the red light above the door blinked to green, and with a pop and a hiss, the latch slid open. A blast of heat and the smell of ionized air came in from the gaps between the loading ramp and the lounge. Campana stood and moved to the hatch. An attendant stood beside the door to greet everyone and check them off a list on a little pad with a smile. In the gap between the ramp and the wall, Campana spied something different in the view, 
a different angle than she'd been presented with this morning. She saw the slingshot, its ramp huge and looming in the distance. It seemed taller than the hills, but that could have been a trick of perspectives. Every time she'd been to space, it had been under rocket power or on a ship akin to a jet airplane. She hadn't been up the slingshot before and was excited to see if it lived up to its bone-crushing reputation. She suspected the notoriety of the slingshot's brutality was an artifact of civilians who hadn't been through naval training and experienced a crush of G's on their body, but Campana still looked forward to the lift. Soon, thank God, she'd be back in space and away from this hard, unforgiving rock. Commander Begay politely cleared his throat and she turned to look at him. Campana realized she was holding up the entire boarding process, peering out at the slingshot, but nobody said anything. Everyone waited politely until Captain Campana went through the door. This is what it will be like, she realized, being a captain. So begins the tale of Captain Claire Campana. I hope you enjoy um, listening as her story unfolds and we see her go into space and find out exactly what her mission will be with the World Navy. As always, we encourage you to go to mindframepodcast.com and take a look at our wares. We like to sell wares. Um, you can get uh, all sorts of merchandise, t-shirts, hats, coffee mugs, you name it. And you can also find um, some of my other writing. My uh, first novel, 181 Pine, is available there. It is the beginning of the Sixth Paradigm uh, series. And you can also find the books of Zach Smith, who is the, the host of our sit-down episodes. He's got three novels and a collection of short stories on sale on the, the website as well. Um, we'll be doing some uh, giveaways and uh, some regular contests and so forth for both Mindframe and 181 Pine. And in order to uh, find those, you'll want to reach us, reach us on social media. And we've got various social media accounts. We'd love it, love it, love it if you uh, joined, liked, subscribed, and especially shared. Um, sharing is the big thing because it helps spread the word of Mindframe and help you indoctrinate your friends into what you have hopefully come to know and love as your favorite podcast. So on Facebook, we are simply Mindframe Podcast. On Instagram, we are The Mindframe Podcast. On Twitter, we are The Mindframe Pod. And on Reddit, we are r slash Mindframe Podcast. As we always like to announce, we are a member of the Podbelly Network and we are a Podbelly original because we are uh, produced by Podbelly. The show would not uh, look or feel anything like it does without the experts over at Podbelly. Um, but within the Podbelly Network, you can find shows such as The Ectoplasm Show. Um, if you search for me on their episodes, you'll find two different episodes where I gave some of my own paranormal stories and they were dissected by the gentlemen who, who are at The Ectoplasm Show. It's a really great show. Um, and you will also find All Things Star Wars, which, as you can imagine, is a show about all things Star Wars. Um, but also another member of the, uh, the Podbelly Network is the Sofa King podcast. And um, if you didn't know about it, uh, myself and Brent Van Tassel and Brad Taylor are, are uh, the, the third of our stooges. Um, are the hosts of the Sofa King podcast. We do a, a researched look at various topics that our listeners want us to talk about, ranging from serial killers to conspiracy theories to important moments in history or anything that you can imagine. We are not safe for work, um, but it is a fun podcast with a really, really amazing group of people who support it. So if you're looking to, to learn a little and laugh a little, um, check out uh, Sofa King podcast. 
Um, I think that's really all that I have for the end of this episode. So I hope you enjoyed the story of Claire Campana and I hope you're enjoying uh, Mindframe. Um, even though it might still seem a little bit disjointed, I promise you at some point all the threads start to tie together um, and hopefully the payoff is amazing. Um, I think it's great. I think you'll think it's great too. So we appreciate you going on the ride with us. And as always, if you want to listen to the sit down, if there's anything about this chapter that you're curious about, you want to know more about, um, you can always uh, join patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast, uh, join at the level that gives you access to the sit down episodes and you'll hear myself and Zach Smith and Brent uh, talk about this particular episode, uh, give theories, ask questions, etc. And as always, if you have questions, you're curious about something, you think you figure out some angle, you have a, a theory about what's going on. Post it on social media, engage with us, talk with us. Um, that's really one of the best parts of doing a podcast is being able to talk to you guys online. So um, I think that's about it for this episode. And as always, remember, the Lariat is closing. <laughs>